And we are live. Hello, everyone. I'm thrilled to welcome you all to the first episode of my podcast, Demystify Biometrics, a video podcast for product teams where I interview researchers and practitioners in the biometric space to demystify topics across the biometrics domain. I'm your host, Ashok Singhal, and in this episode, we will talk about the one-on-one -on, -one on biometric standards. So let's get started. To kick the product series off, I wanted to invite someone who is a subject matter expert and has hands-on experience in the biometrics domain. As I researched on LinkedIn, his name was at the top of the search results. Without any further ado, it is my honor to welcome John Splain to this episode. Welcome, John. Thank you, Ashok. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. John is the founder of Biometrics Guru. He did his Bachelor of Science in Physics with scientific instrumentation from Carnegie Mellon and his Master's in Systems Engineering from University of Maryland. What caught my attention was his decades of experience in biometrics standards development and adoption. I do not want to miss any of your accomplishments, John, and steal your thunder. Why not you give us a 60-second pitch on your professional career? Well, I'll give you a quick overview is that I've been providing systems and software engineering expertise to the United States federal government in the Washington, D.C. area since I graduated from Carnegie Mellon in 1990. I've been working around biometrics and forensics and in standards development and adoption for about 25 years. Um, I've worked on and around all of the large scale U.S. federal automated biometric identification systems, including but not necessarily limited to FBI's Next Generation Identification and its predecessor, IAFIS, the DOD Automated Biometric Identification System, or DOD-ABIS, the Department of State ABIS, and the DHS Automated Biometric Identification System, IDENT, which is currently in the process of being replaced by the Homeland Automated Recognition Technology, or HART program. Um, when I was with DOD Biometrics, the Project Management Office, I also supported a, a wide variety of smaller biometric systems, most notably near real-time identity operations or NRTIO. Um, and getting ahead of myself a little with organizations and acronyms, uh, my subject matter expertise in standards development and adoption includes work with the International and U.S. Technical Committees for Biometrics, SC37 and M1 Biometrics, respectively, as well as the ANSI-NIST Information Technology Laboratory canvas for the data format for the interchange of fingerprint, facial, and other biometric information. Um, I was the inaugural chair of the American Academy of Forensic Sciences, or AAFS Standards Board, ASB Standards Board, Friction Ridge Consensus Body, of which I'm an observing member now. And in 2022, I rejoined the Facial Identification Scientific Working Group, or FISWIG, and I joined the International Association for Identification, or IAI, and the Organization of Scientific Area Committees, or OSAC, face identification subcommittees to assist in developing standards and best practices. Wow. So wow. that's probably more than 60 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> wow, what an incredible experience and, and background. Thank you for the overview, John. I appreciate it. All right, let's dive right into the basics of biometric standards and, and start and start with the fundamental question, what are biometric standards? Okay, well, this is gonna foreshadow some of the information we're gonna cover in a little bit in terms of the uh, structure and organization of the standards development organizations or SDOs. Um, but 
fundamentally there are the different types include biometric standards for data interchange formats and transmission specifications, as well as common file formats that provide platform independence and separation of transfer syntax from content definition. Um, biometric standards include application programming interfaces or APIs and application profiles of things like data formats um, that provide technical interfaces between systems and pro promote interoperability. There are standards for performance metric definitions and calculations, approaches to test performance, including but not limited to systems, technologies, scenarios, specific modalities, and multimodal biometric implementations, as well as requirements for reporting the results of these performance tests. Uh, there are also standards and reports for non-technical aspects of biometrics, including but not limited to accessibility, health and safety, support of legal requirements, and acknowledgement of cross-jurisdictional and societal considerations pertaining to personal information. Interesting. Thank you for sharing that, John. Um, John, one of the questions that I have frequently heard from product development teams is how these, how these standards enable product teams to build better and safer biometric products. Could you please share your experience here? Well, I, I get that question frequently. Is it why, are, why are biometric standards important? And they're largely important for the same reasons that we, we trust a laptop or printer plugged into the wall is going to turn on and run. Or that if I use a USB-C cable for a peripheral, that that peripheral is going to work as it's intended to. Biometric standards enable the development of integrated, scalable, and robust solutions. Uh, they reduce the risk of vendor dependence and lock-in. They reduce the cost of development and maintenance of system solutions by leveraging standard data interchange formats, which promote interoperability. Um, standards for testing biometric sample quality performance or for testing conformance to biometric standards provide system owners a higher level of confidence that the systems and products they purchase will perform in the manner they're expected to. And standards conformance provides assurance to end users um, by increasing their confidence that personnel, products, systems, processes, or services have been evaluated against the requirements within the standard. I see, I see. Um, John, when I, started the, when I started in the biometric space back in 2015, I was, very confused between we have NC standards and we have ISO standards. Could you please help us demystify the confusion around different type of biometric standards and who develops them? Sure, sure. And I'll take a, a little step back before I, hopefully just one step back before two steps forward. Last year, I was invited to write a book chapter, Standards for Electronic Fingerprint Transmission for the third edition of the Encyclopedia of Forensic Sciences. Um, in that chapter, I refer to what I call commercial and non-commercial biometric standards. At the international level, and this is a mouthful, is the International Organization for Standardization, International Electrotechnical Commission, Joint Technical Committee 1, Subcommittee 37, Biometrics. In acronym form, that's ISO, IEC, JTC1, SC37, or most commonly just SC37. The U.S. Technical Advisory Group, or TAG, to SC37 is the International Committee for Information Technology Standards, INSIGHTS, 
Biometrics Technical Committee. So on the commercial side, there are ISO standards that are published internationally. They go through a, a, an international development process that typically spans three to five years, depends on the standard and how controversial it is. Um, to participate internationally, you have to participate nationally as well. And that's where the US tag comes in. So on the commercial side, as a member, I might participate in Insights M1, where I will get documents that are under development internationally, and I can review those as part of the US national body. And then I can offer comments, which will go up to the international cycle for disposition and turning into the next, next draft of the document. So the, the point being that there's sort of a lather, rinse, repeat cycle to a draft is published, it's put out for comment, member bodies comment on it, and then those comments are disposed of and a new draft is produced. And that continues until the members feel that it's ready for publication. Mm -hmm. And the interplay there is that this is done internationally, and then there's also a feedback loop for the various national bodies. So here in the U.S., it's, the, it's ANSI. In the, U in the UK, it's BSI, British Standards Institute, I believe. And there's a national body for each country out there that participates in ISO. So the short answer to your question is there are ISO standards. And then typically those ISO standards are adopted by individual national bodies. So if you see an ANSI standard that says ANSI ISO 19794-1, uh, typically, what it means is you can buy it through ANSI at a discount as opposed to buying it straight from the ISO website. But it's the, it'll tend to be the exact same standard that's available. You can purchase it from ISO directly, um, I think, in Swiss francs from their web store, or you could buy it through the ANSI web store at somewhat of a discount. Got it. So basically, ISO is the international body defining these standards, and then we have individual bodies, standard bodies in each country as well. Yes. So and, and a, a maybe a quick history lesson that if this survives the editing process is that M1 biometrics was actually stood up in the wake uh, in, in the pre 9-11 time frame to, to address issues in biometrics. And SE37 was stood up slightly on the heels of M1. Um, and in that time frame, M1 developed national standards standards for things like uh, finger minutia, finger image, face image, iris image, and we developed U.S. national standards. Those eventually were fed up to ISO and developed into international standards. I see. So in the early days, it was we had a national body that was developing standards for our own use nationally. And then when we those were baked and finished, we offered those up for international use. As standards development took off internationally, things kind of reversed, is that we no longer really develop national standards. Most of our work goes into submitting work for the international standards development stage. I see. I see. That is very helpful. Thank you for sharing that. And, and a follow-up to, follow to this question is, like, where does NIST play in this uh, standards ecosystem? Mm -hmm. Well, that goes back to where I had broken things into commercial and non-commercial standards, is that for the purposes of the book chapter, I took sort of took that liberty to say commercial versus non-commercial. 
Um, and I use non-commercial because I don't necessarily want to say governmental um, because ANSI-NIST ITL may be used for things that are not specifically governmental systems. And that's where ANSI-NIST ITL comes in is that ANSI-NIST ITL is a, it's a national standards development organization and it developed what initially in the 1980s was a fingerprint-based standard. It was a fingerprint minutia standard and it has grown through an enormous amount of growth and it's a de facto standard internationally is that it has been adopted and implemented by international organizations, including but not limited to Interpol, Afghanistan, Argentina, Brazil, Bulgaria, Canada, Germany, and many, many more. Um, it is a, a data format for the interchange of fingerprint, face, and other biometric information. I see. So yeah, that, makes sense. that that standard is explains what each of the modalities is in sort of a bits and bytes. You know, this is what mean it means to be a fingerprint. This is what fingerprint minutia are or fingerprint features are. This is what goes in a face image. It doesn't tell you how to use that. That's kind of reserved for an implementation. So it's a specific transmission specification, such as FBI, Electronic Biometric Transmission Specification, or the DOD, Electronic Biometric Transmission Specification, actually dictates what a transaction is. For a specific transaction, I expect you to send me up to 14 fingerprint images of flattened rolled fingerprints up to five face images from left profile to right profile, up to you know two uh, iris images and specific demographic and biographic information to accompany it. So the ANSI-NIST ITL standard is what's known as a base standard. It just tells you what goes in each record. Type nine is, is fingerprint features. Type 10 is for uh, body imagery type 11 is voice, type 12 is dental, but it doesn't tell you how to use those. It's up to an organization to define its own requirements as to how it wants those things packaged and grouped. Got it, got it. Okay, thank you for sharing that. Uh, let's move on to the, to the next question. Um, another question that I have received from product teams uh, when they are building on, especially a new biometrics product for the first time, is what standard or standards do you recommend them to acquaint themselves with different components of a biometric system, could be terminology, image acquisition, sample, image quality, performance. Is there a standard that defines the terminology and describes these components, different different terminology? Mm -hmm. um, well, I'll actually answer your last question first about are there different standards for each modality and provide a little bit more background on ISO standards, at least the ISO standards with which I'm familiar from SC37. And that's that many standards have multiple parts. Hmm. And that first part will be part one framework. And what that does is it lays out the framework for all of the other parts of the standard. Um, and it also has all of the requirements that are common regardless of the other parts. And where that becomes immediately relevant is for the first and second generation of data formats, there's the 19794 series of standards. And each part contains a different biometric modality. So for example, and this is just to name a few of them, finger minutia data is part two. Finger image data is part four. 
Face image data is part five. Iris image data is part six. Vascular image data is part nine. Voice data is part 13. DNA data is part 14. And palm crease image data is part 15. And that's just a few that came off the top of the website when I did a quick search for 19794. Um, and there's now a third generation that's mostly gone to XML representation, which is the 39794 series, which follows that same numbering scheme. Um, to get to your question about biometric sample data, there's a series of part, there's a series standard called 29794, which is for uh, biometric sample quality. And it aligns with the 19794. So finger image data is again, part four, face image data is part five, and iris image data is part six. That standard has been built in such a way as to leave placeholders for each of the different data interchange formats. And as sample quality standards are, uh, evolve for each of those, if there were to be one for voice or for DNA, there's a, a slot available for that sample quality to be developed. Um, and last and probably most important is your question about terminology. And this is especially for newcomers is there is a standard information technology vocabulary, part 37 biometrics. There's an overall information technology vocabulary document for all of the IT, everything under joint technical committee one. And then for each one of the various subcommittees, they have their own part again. So part 37 is the vocabulary for biometrics. And this is actually one of a small number of ISO standards that are freely available mm -hmm. on the internet. And we can include a, a URL to that uh, following the podcast I can provide. Absolutely. Absolutely. That would be great. That would be very that's, helpful. That's probably the most important for newcomers because vocabulary is key. So that when we're talking about something that we both know that we're, when we say scenario test, yeah. you and I both know what scenario test means and we're using it in exactly the same way. So especially for newcomers, I would say, although I talked about it last, it's probably the most important thing they should dive into is the, the biometrics vocabulary. That's great. I, I'm glad to hear that there is at least something that is uh, freely available because normally these standards are pretty like, you know, around $200 US dollars or so. So that's yes. Which, which is partly why I, I shared the ANSI ISO or during the ANSI ISO is that you can go to the ANSI web store or you can go to Tech Street. There are a couple of different purveyors out there that sell standards. It's important to know that a national body may sanction the ISO standard and then be able to sell it at a, at a discount so that if you go out looking for you can pay. And I don't know the going rate, but yes, say 200, 250 dollars for a uh, data interchange format standard at the ISO web store, you might be able to perform or purchase it for less at the ANSI web store or a third party ANSI adopted version of the ISO standard. That's, that's great. We will provide, definitely provide the links in the description. Thank mm -hmm. you, John. Sure. All right, moving on. Um, so clearly there has been a lot of work that has gone into developing and publishing these standards. So the next question is, before launching a new biometrics product, how can product teams ensure that their product conforms to a particular standard or standards? Well, this is an area where I wish my technical depth was a little deeper and not quite so shallow. But ideally, 
product teams that have developed to the requirements of, of one or more standards should be able to submit their products to a third party testing facility that's been certified to test against a variety of standards. Um, generally, in my experience, many vendors have claims of self-conformance um, as the infrastructure and testing labs are, are being set up in various areas. I think probably the most robust area of third-party testing is in terms of, of performance testing, is that you can have things performance tested by um, certified labs. Got it. And for, for audience, I mean, can they just Google these uh, third-party labs or is there a specific website or can they find these labs on, on NIST somewhere? Or Probably I would have to say Google search and that's where I would offer that my technical depth isn't as great as I'd like it to be. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, Google is a good resource for that. Thank you for sharing that. Awesome. And, you know, how often, John, these standards change? And how can uh, the product team stay on top of these standard updates? Well, ISO standards, and again, we, we're, we're defaulting a, a lot of this conversation is defaulting to the ISO standards because that's most of the, where the work is being done. Um, they're re reviewed every five years, either for reaffirmation, revision, or withdrawal. So when a, when a standard has been published, it kind of goes on a shelf for five years. And then there's a process that says, oh, that was published in 2016. It's 2021 or 2021 is coming up. It's time to, you know, in 2020, something that was published in 2016 is taken down from the shelf and kind of dusted off, looked at by the membership. And we oh. ask ourselves, has it changed? Has the content changed? Are there new things that we need to put in there? The way to stay on top of standards ideally is to participate in your national body. Mm -hmm. Now that comes of course with time and expense. Um, so otherwise you can keep up with things by just staying current with the SC37 and ISO websites. Got it. Thank you. That's very helpful. Uh, so John, last question in this section, and given your experience and knowledge in this space, I mean, I'm pretty sure we can go on and on, but let me, let me ask you one last question in this section. One topic that is related to standards is the interoperability of biometric data across different independent biometric systems. We obviously cannot cover all the specifics in this episode, and we need a dedicated episode for that, but I want to leave the audience with some food for thought on this topic. It is a massive problem in the private commercial space. From your perspective on a high level, what role do standards play in making these independent biometric systems interoperable? Well, that's where I would probably lean on my U.S. federal government contracting experience, is that to the government, it's important to avoid vendor lock-in, or it's important to have their, you know, one agency system be interoperable with another agency system. Hmm. And the way that typically comes into play in the federal contracting sector is by making standards requirements of an acquisition. So when agency X says, I want to build a biometric system, they can include 19794 parts one, four, five, and six for you know, finger minutia, face images, and iris images, and say that you'll conform to those standards. 
um, they can include 19795, which is, which is a multi-part biometric performance testing standard. Um, so it basically comes down to putting in the requirements hmm. to an acquisition for specific standards. And then those standards have shall statements that says thou shalt represent data in this way. And what that does is it allows uh, a, a system owner or a system builder to have confidence hmm. that if they want to import or export data, that it will be done according to those, you know, those standards. And that if they're interoperating with another system that understands those, <clears throat> excuse me, we won't have to do any translation or transmogrification of the data to say, oh, well, it came in in a PDF and it has to go out in an Excel spreadsheet. Here's the translator. We don't have to do that. We just know that, <clears throat> excuse me, because we've conformed to a standard format hmm. that the file I send you, you can open in a standard reader. I see. I see. That makes sense. So by defining, by laying out these requirements for technology providers, they can confirm, they can build their systems around these requirements. And that's how they make their systems um, interoperable. Right. Maybe a, maybe a more concrete example is if I send you a PNG image or I send you a JPEG image from my cell phone, when you receive it on your phone, you can just open the image. You don't have to do anything to it. Yeah. You can just open that image and view the photo of my dog or the photo of my kids that I sent you. Yeah. That makes sense. For example, biometric data interchange formats have that same kind of structure. Hmm. Of, it may have a finger image in it, but it also has other information of which finger is it? Is it the index from the right hand? Is it the middle finger from the left hand? It may have, you know, what kind of a scanner was used. So I can send you, I see, you know, a fingerprint that, it, you know, adheres to the ISO standard. It's not quite as built into your phone as a JPEG or a PNG, but by way of analogy, if I send you that standard format, you have the you know the the magic decoder ring for being able to open that file, look at the file header, and see what the information is inside that. Got it. That makes absolute sense. Thank you for sharing that. Sure. Awesome. That concludes our section two, um, and we are on to the next section, which is my favorite section. It's rapid fire, where I ask the guests some general questions about biometrics, so audience can hear about different perspectives because we all have different experiences based on our professional career. So we have different perspectives. So it'll be interesting to hear from you, your perspective on these questions. So shall we, John? Sure. Awesome. So if you had to explain biometrics to your grandparent or a 10-year-old kid, how would you describe biometrics? Well, I think the simplest explanation is that we're just comparing two samples of something. So we're taking a picture of your face and a picture of another face, and we're just trying to determine, are these two pictures of the same person? Hmm. Or I have audio recordings. Is the voicemail message that I've got the same as, as a voice recording of something else? Hmm. And it's, it's very grossly, we're just comparing these two things and trying to determine, are these both Ashok? Yeah. Or is this Ashok and his you know, younger brother. 
yeah, or a cousin, um, and what what kind of a, a difference measure we have there. That's probably the the simplest way. I mean, it gets obviously much much more complex when we ask questions of, is this person's face image in this gallery in the DMV? Mm. Is John trying to impersonate mm. somebody in the gallery, or is John trying to get another driver's license when he already has one? Yeah. You know, that's where it gets much, much more complicated. But fundamentally, it comes down to, is this sample the same as this sample? Did it come from the same person? Yeah. I, I love the definition. Thank you. Um, how do you stay on top of all the latest developments that's happening in the biometrics field? I wish I had a good answer for that. <laughs> I wish there was like a nice, simple, like, here's the spigot of biometrics. Yeah. Just go here and stay tapped in. Yeah. Uh, but the general answer to that is that I'm a member of AFCEA International, mm -hmm. which is a, a contracting organization here in, largely in the, the, well, for me, it's largely here in the D.C. area. Um, but I, as a result, I get all of their mailings, which there's a whole host of different mailings that I skim uh, and keep an eye out mostly for the ones that have something to do with biometrics. I'm also a member of the ASB Standards Board friction ridge consensus body. So that allows me to keep my finger in what's happening in friction ridge standards development on the forensic side. And because of the people that come to play there, there are practitioners, there are fingerprint examiners, there are lawyers. I get to hear a lot about what's going on in friction ridge. So I just kind of keep tabs there. I'm also a member of the Biometrics Institute, which is an international organization that, again, affords me many different mailings. Um, if I were able to travel overseas, it would give me an opportunity to go to some international conferences and symposia. Um, but mostly I just keep tabs on their mailings. And they also do podcasts and things throughout the year where I try to keep abreast of what's going on with them. And I'm a member of the International Association for Identification, which uh, gives me an opportunity to be members of the Biometric Information Services Subcommittee and the Facial Identification Subcommittee. So again, by participating in mailings and meetings, I get to hear what's going on from other folks. In addition to that, I subscribe to IEEE Spectrum, uh, the National Academies Press, and Fine Biometrics. And on top of that, I like most folks, I just keep an eye on LinkedIn and Twitter. I see. <laughs> oh, well, that's quite a number of resources. Thank you for sharing that. I'm pretty sure our audience will find it very useful. Well, and of course, we can provide links to all of these things as necessary after the podcast. Sounds good. That'll be great. Thank you. Um, next next uh, question is, what biometrics conference in U.S. or abroad would you recommend for the audience to either attend or gain insights into the recent advancements in biometrics? Well, nationally, that's a toss-up, is that there's an up-and-coming organization called Identity Week America, which typically meets in... October in the Washington, D.C. area, and that's been growing over the last few years. Um, and it's starting to give some really good competition to another conference that's currently going by the name FedID. It's been around for over 20 years. I think it just celebrated a, a major 20-something anniversary last year, and it's previously been known as the Biometric Consortium Conference, um, the Global Identity Summit. It's gone through a few name changes, but it's still fundamentally the same and it's, a, it's currently going by the name FedID, and it's the largest U.S. federal government biometrics showcase. 
Um, so it's kind of a toss up between those two. I see. Got it. Um, last question of this section is, um, this is, this may be a tricky question. How different your biometrics journey be if you get a chance to do things all over again? That's the one question that I didn't actually sit down and script remarks for. So this is probably the toughest. I don't know. Um, because when I first got into biometrics, I was doing programming for something called the Universal Latent Workstation. And back at that time, I was primarily a coder. I was primarily a software engineer. And I remember having a conversation with Austin Hicklin, who was the first developer of the ULW, and saying that I wanted to be, in 10 years, I wanted to be a systems engineer who knew something about fingerprints. I didn't want to be like a fingerprint expert who knew a little bit about coding. Yeah. And maybe that, that would be the one thing I might do differently is that, that I would probably be, a, try to be a little bit more in depth in some of the biometric and forensic technologies and maybe not have stayed so, so true to being like, I want to be a software engineer who knows a little bit about this subject matter yeah. as opposed to where I am today, which is, I have a much broader subject matter expertise in biometrics and forensics, and I haven't touched code in probably 15 or 20 years. <laughs> Interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. All right. This brings us to the last section um, of our podcast, which is basically the closure. So how do companies or people reach out to you for engagement, um, John? Well, I'm actually, this gives me a good opportunity to, to announce the launching or relaunching of my, my website. I had a, a, a colleague from college who is a, a wonderful graphic designer, Roger Shaw, rebuilt and reformatted, redid the design content of my website. So if you go to biometrics.guru, uh, you'll find my company webpage. Um, I have a small LLC, Biometrics Guru LLC, on where I do a little bit of consulting on the side. And that's probably the, the best splash page for me that covers a lot of, of what we've talked about here in this, this podcast. Um, and it, of course, has a contact me page. Um, I'm also available on Twitter at biometrics underscore guru. Unfortunately, biometrics guru was already taken and <laughs> has not tweeted in probably 15 years and, and has not responded to my messages about by being able to trying to buy that handle over. But yeah. you can find me at biometrics underscore guru on Twitter. And I'm also available at Biometrics Guru on Facebook. Awesome. So we'll provide all of these links in our uh, description, John. Mm -hmm. Awesome. With this, um, I really want to thank you, John, for all your time and contributions to the biometric community. Uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, and if you like my episode and want to stay informed about the upcoming episodes, please like and sign up for my podcast. I will leave the link all the links in the description. Thank you again and have a great rest of your day. Appreciate it. Thank you, John. Thank you, Ashok.